Is it important for us to wait quietly while John sets us up? <laughs> You're fine, and we are live. So, welcome, everyone, to Connected Learning TV. This is the second webinar in a month-long series called uh, Looking Closely at Student Work in the Digital Age. Um, my name is Andrew Slowinski. I'm the co-founder of DIY.org, and um, I'll be our host for today. So throughout June, we invite you to join Educator Innovator Partners, KQED, the Maker Education Initiative, and Project Zero as we look at ways uh, student production is changing in the digital age and how educators can make sense of these shifts. Um, today, I'm really excited to be joined by a great group of folks um, uh, throughout the National Writing Project as well as Creativity Labs and Project Zero. But before we dive into our chat, um, I'd like to talk through a couple of quick details. To those watching live right now, we welcome your comments either via the connected learning hashtag on Twitter or the Google Plus event page. Uh, we'll look for your questions that we can address here in the Google Hangout. And then also, uh, we're going to be chatting throughout the month in the connected learning Google Plus community using the same connected learning hashtag on Google Plus. Um, but before we dive into things, I'd like to give um, our guests the chance to briefly introduce themselves. Uh, Kylie, would you like to start? Sure. So I'm Kylie Pepler. I'm an assistant professor here at Indiana University. Um, I'm in the learning sciences, so I look at, at how people learn, particularly in the arts and new technologies. And I've been captivated by this idea of student production, thinking about what people produce and how that transforms um, both themselves and, and um, their local group for a long time now. And, uh, and so I currently direct uh, the Creativity Labs. I've been involved in the Maker Education Open Portfolio Project recently. I've also studied Scratch and e-textiles and a variety of student productions. Great. Thank you for being here. Um, Tina, how about yourself? Sure. Uh, so my name is Tina Blythe. I um, am connected to Project Zero in a variety of ways. I did full-time research there for about 17 years. I still work with the Project Zero institutes, and mostly my research and my work with those institutes and with schools all over the place now is around looking at student work and how uh, educators can use student work both to understand students better, understand their learning better, but also to understand how our teaching um, is happening and how we can improve it. So uh, that's really the focus of my work these days is working with different schools and, and districts around putting those practices in place and um, figuring out how to do them in a thoughtful and ongoing way when we honestly don't have a whole lot of time uh, these days to, to sit and think. So. Great. And then Troy, how about yourself? Hello, I'm Troy Hicks. I'm an associate professor of English at Central Michigan University. I'm also the director of the Chippewa River Writing Project, so I've been involved with the National Writing Project uh, for just over a decade in various roles and forms, and um, currently trying to figure out ways that we can use the principles of connected learning to help students become better readers and writers in a digital age. Great. All right, so the, the first question that I have for the group, and this is just kind of to try to set the stage for this discussion, is um, I'm really curious um, to understand what does looking closely at student work uh, mean to yourselves, both within your professional experience, like practicing and working with students, but also a little bit more broadly in the work that you're doing with your various different programs, and how do you see that differing from typical evaluation and assessment practices? That's a great question. <laughs> Do you want to take so a crack at it, Tina? Sure, sure. 
sure. Go ahead. This is the first awkward pause where we don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I don't mind awkward pauses. Um, this is our icebreaker question. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, I, you know, I think about it. I often feel a little odd um, going around and talking to, to teachers and administrators about the importance of looking at student work because who doesn't look at student work, right? I mean, we're looking at it all the time. Um, the question is how much we're actually seeing when we look at it. And I think a lot of the time, I know for myself in a routine, I still, um, I taught middle and high school for a while. I still do guest teaching with at an eighth grade uh, at a school near here periodically. And I know that the crush of time pushes me to look quickly and efficiently um, at the work. And that's necessary. And there's also a place for stepping back and suspending judgment. Right, because I think in the in the rush to judge, we miss a lot of what's going on for students. So that move to um, to uh, suspend the judgment and look with colleagues so that we're getting different perspectives on what's going on for the students. Those are those are the two key things for me in in a a good process for looking at student work. Now that said, I think there's also a place for um, the moment when teachers gather at the table to evaluate the work, that is to put a grade on it. But most of the time, what I'm most interested in is the moment where we decide, you know what, we're not interested in grading right now. What we're really interested in is understanding the learning from the student's perspective. What did the world look like to the student as he or she was working on this particular piece uh, that we're studying? And so a lot of the work I do is just different processes for helping groups do that, because it's really hard. You know, that, that moment of describing what the students are doing sounds very simple and in fact turns out to be very complicated uh, once we sit with a group of teachers and do it. So there's a there's a start. Yeah, yeah. you bring up um, two interesting points. So one is um, within you know the education technology space a lot of times there's a lot of um, sort of attention paid to the scalability of um, of looking at student work, but particularly in terms of the scalability of assessment. And a lot of times that can actually color um, the ways in which we're looking at the work, but also the ways in which the students start to look at their own work. Um, and I know that that sort of introspection or that sort of self-reflection is a big part of what Kylie and her team are working on, um, uh, particularly with the Open Portfolios project. Um, Kylie, do you, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I think those themes that Tina brought out that really resonate with me in terms of that that um, that taking a moment to take a you know the the closer and the closer look I think is so important. Um, in in my own work, you know, when I was situated at the Computer Clubhouse in South Los Angeles, there was a a girl that that came um, to the after school studio quite often, and and we had um, uh, you know kind of all noticed that she was there. She wasn't producing the most sophisticated of work, and and so forth, and was she was kind of. Being being dismissed by the local environment. But mm -hmm. as I started looking at her portfolio of work over time, I started noticing actually she had created the most scratch projects. And um, and so I started taking a little bit closer look at exactly what these were. And, and I remember the coordinator saying, oh, don't, don't look 
closely at her case because, um, you know, she can't read and, and write at grade level. You know, you're not going to find anything sophisticated there. And to some extent, you know, when the coordinator is telling you this and, and so forth and you're trying to decide who gets to go on this special field trip, uh, you really want to trust their judgment. Um, but as I started looking at exactly what she was producing, um, not only was it the most quantity, but when I took it to this external panel, as, as Tina was talking about, um, they identified her work amongst hundreds of projects as being the most sophisticated in the group. And, and so it really, it shifted the way we saw her, it shifted the way she saw herself um, in that work. And, and the kinds of work that she was creating, you know, it had this sophistication about it that was akin to professional media artists. And so, um, so I think the, um, the idea of, of taking a moment to reflect, to step back, you know, to kind of dismiss the things that you think you know when you come to children's work um, and really looking at the sophistication of what they do bring to it is really important. Um, you know, the, the diverse opinions was really important in the scratch work, for example, because computer programmers saw one thing. They saw sophistication code. Um, they really enjoyed the projects that were emulating professional work. Um, and, and our media artists actually saw something completely the opposite. You know, they didn't actually love the projects that were emulating anything that existing. They didn't love the project because of the sophistication of the code, but they loved the project because there was something expressive about it, something about what was happening in these pieces. And so, um, so as, we, as we dive in, you know, I, I love this idea of keeping the multiple perspectives, of stepping away from, from our initial assumptions and really looking cl more closely at the work. Yeah, th that certainly resonates, um, particularly with some of my experiences back in Detroit working with kids um, sort of more on the ground. You know, my experiences at DIY are a little bit different because um, the kids that, that have come into DIY are anonymous to us. We have no idea how old they are, what gender they are, where they are, any of those pieces. And so, um, you know, from my perspective, it's often helped quite a bit in terms of being able to remove your own biases um, in you know, across all of these different things, like my biases as an engineer, my biases as a designer, my biases as, a, as an educator, um, the anonymous nature that technology actually affords to us um, certainly helps with that a lot. But I'm interested to hear from Troy, because um, I know that you're working on the ground quite a bit as well. Um, any thoughts? Yes, so one project in particular that I've been working on over about the past year or so is with a group of seven other National Writing Project teachers. And what I asked them to do was look closely at student digital work, which as Tina was saying earlier, it seems very easy, but in fact is incredibly complicated. And so where we're at at this kind of moment with uh, Common Core assessments and new um, types of demands that are being made on teachers when we think about integrating one-to-one -one and looking at data and so forth, we think about these digital products that kids are creating and what I think um, protocols and types of non-evaluative discussions but exploratory discussions allow us to do is to think very carefully about that process. You know, we've always talked about writing as a process and yes, kids were supposed to document by having their rough draft and then their final draft and all these things. Um, but normally what would happen with my middle school kids is they would turn in their final draft and then go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, whoop, and write down the outline and turn that in, too. Like, oh, okay, that was, that was really valuable, thanks. But the idea now is that we can help kids document that process all along the way. And then as teachers, we can also look at that process and, and think about what they're doing. So 
We have, um, for instance, like the Writing uh, Program Administrators, National Council of Teachers of English, National Writing Project, put out the framework for success for post-secondary writing, which includes, uh, they're not standards, they're more habits of mind, like flexibility and creativity and open-mindedness and those types of things. Well, those are really hard to measure on a rubric, but if we are able to adapt and think about some of these um, ways to ask questions about the work and what students have learned, then we can get at some of those habits of mind. And in particular with the teachers, what we did is I had them each identify one piece of student work. Um, we did a protocol discussion, um, kind of modeled after the collaborative assessment protocol, among others, and we were offering feedback to the teachers about what we saw and what we valued in the work. Uh, and we had everything from digital stories to a video game made with GameStar mechanic. And we're just trying to really expand and think about our ideas of what it means to compose in a digital age. So that's one of the main projects I've been working on lately. That's great. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've started to notice um, as I've just, like, kept working with kids over the years is that, the you know, from our perspective as educators, we, we very we often very clearly delineate between what is virtual and what is the physical um, in a way that a lot of times our students seem to be doing less and less. Um, you know, I can't even count the number of times that we've had Minecraft things submitted to DIY for actual physical things. Like, we actually want you to build a log cabin, not give us a log cabin <laughs> in Minecraft. Um, and I think um, some of those some of that tension that we sort of see between delineating between these two spaces, whereas kids are now sort of because they're uh, because they're they're living in this sort of ether that spans both sides, starts to affect kind of the way in which we think about authorship, right? Like um, it's it, there there isn't much of a distinction, particularly when you have a mobile device that's like with you at all times. Even when you're making something physically, a lot of times you're connected in some sort of way. I know, um, Kylie, this is one of the pieces that's, that kind of connects to open portfolios as well, but I'm curious to get everyone's sort of thoughts on, you know, what are you seeing in terms of the patterns around the digital aspects of student work? And that can both be in actually creating digital things using GameStar Mechanic or Scratch, but also I'm really curious to, talk, to, to listen a little bit about, um, you know, digital back channels that are happening around student work um, and sort of how you how how everyone sees that um, that playing a factor um, in in uh, youth production? I think there's a lot of affordances of digital work that um, that that causes a little problem, you know, as we think about translating the the analog of that into into back into our physical spaces. I think um, you know so. You know, a couple things come to mind is that you know, with digital work, it's easier for us to capture process, right? With think about Google Docs, think about a lot of these um, uh, tools that we use in professional practices that they do track changes. Um, you know, we can restore documents, we can undo them, and so forth. And so, as we move into the physical world, as we're building those log cabins, um, you know, we don't have the tools to capture that, but we also don't have the um, the same uh, abilities to undo um, that space. And so, you know, the kids are working, they're practicing 
practices are a little bit different in the digital space. Um, but then, then um, as you're there, you know, I've been working um, with some folks up at Purdue, Karthik Romani, and others, and and you know, we've come up with some really nice tools um, that we call Sketch Wiki as a way of of capturing the process of um, sort of group collaboration over time. So, so there's a lot of hope, I think, for thinking about digital tools and, and becoming more sophisticated in capturing both the process and the product of what you're creating. Um, I think the harder challenge is, is as we move out into the physical environment um, and we think about translating some of, some of the, the, um, the need for capturing the process because we know that's important to learning um, into, into that physical space. Um, so I think like in terms of the physical space, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, my experiences at DIY have been, you know, really, that's like the core tension of the work that I'd been doing there was trying to find a way in which we can basically use an online platform to get kids outside to do things like in the woods um, or with bees or, you know, um, any of these different places that kind of span the digital and the physical. And I think one of the things that, that can be really interesting about digital tools in that way is that there's, there's a variety of different ways in which you can kind of contextualize process for a kid. Um, and some of them can help with reflection, but they kind of do it in different ways. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that I'm personally really interested in is um, this idea of passive documentation. Um, when kids are, when, when a student is or a learner is out in the field making something, that's often the, mo the moment in which they're the most engaged and learning the most is usually the moment in which documentation drops off. Um, and that's a really interesting tension. And so one of the things that, um, you know, I've been talking about with Kylie and others is this idea of passive documentation. How can we create, how can we take advantage of digital technologies, whether that's mobile devices or whether that's, you know, cameras? Uh, what can we use to basically help? Um, what are some of the, the methods or techniques or, or even technologies that we can build to better support youth in their production that would actually that would actually translate and allow for this reflection process without that sort of core tension of of you know dropping the ball on documentation as soon as learning is at its at, is at its peak. Mm. I'd like to jump in with a quick response to that, and I would say it's not always about the technologies; it's about the mindset that they bring to the technologies. Because kids are really good at using technology to document stuff, as we see with Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and Tumblr and who knows what else will be the next thing. So mm -hmm. it, I, I think it's helping them go into that moment with the right types of questions in mind and how they would go about doing the documentation with the tools that they have available. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with, um, Troy, what you've just said there. I think that... Um, to be able to, it, what we're asking students to do in that moment is really to have a different relationship to their learning, right, than just the doing. And I think that takes practice. I think that the capacity to reflect on your thinking, to reflect on your work, is a skill just like reading and writing, and there's a developmental trajectory to it, right? And so what, the question I would add, Andrew, to yours, which I think is such a great question, is how developmentally do we scaffold students so that over time, they develop the capacity to um, both be more aware, be able to move in and out easily of that of that 
both being immersed and then stepping back and reflecting. They, they have that repertoire, right? They can go back and forth easily. And some of that, you know, the technology absolutely can help with that. Um, and, you know, some of the best technology might just be the pencil and paper that happens to be handy, you mm -hmm. know, for that sort of thing, you know? Yep. Right. And even some of the apps that are already native to their phones and tablets. I mean, I can't yeah. tell yeah. you how many times, you know, you're sitting here, even with my own children, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I should have just turned on the voice recorder and listening <laughs> to them talk or read a story or something like that. So I think part of the trick is, yeah, setting up that critical mindset. And, and I think that, again, I know I've referenced this twice now, but that framework for success in post-secondary writing, those habits of mind, I think, are very applicable to digital um, types of products and spaces. Yeah. You know, you're, you're making me also think about um, the work that the Reggio Emilia uh, preschools and early childhood centers do. They're, the documentation they do of student learning is fantastic. Um, I was visiting in November and s saw a classroom. These are four- and five-year-olds in the classroom where the the technology is available to the students to actually capture what they're working on, right? So it's just sitting there, the cameras, and, and there were a couple of students who even while everybody else was really immersed, what they were immersed in was the process of the documentation. And so it's interesting maybe, you know, when, especially when students are in groups, to think about how that, um, how the responsibility for capturing uh, the learning and for capturing the process um, and inviting reflection might be distributed in different ways in a group. There may be students who really gravitate toward that role um, that the other students could learn from in, in the process. Kylie, did you have anything to add to that? Uh, no, not not at the moment. But I, I think it, it's surfacing, you know, a lot of key issues about, um, you know, a lot of times we do look to technology to kind of solve those problems. But it is about building a community of practice and building uh, sort of that repertoire over time. And so, um, so, so I do think, you know, how is it that that uh, I love this this distinction that Troy's made between um, kind of our informal pastimes. It's so easy, um, to, you know, to post a, a picture to, to Facebook or to Twitter, you know to um, um, to do those things and how is it so difficult um, to do so when we're sort of engaged in the learning process and I think Andrew one you know when we had met earlier one of the things that surfaced around this and part of that difficulty is because you get so entranced in the um, in the the flow of the activity to step back and out of it um, can be an interruption to that cycle and and can actually pull you out of of the work that you're doing and so how can it how can it be seamless um, and so it is it is it's really encouraging to kind of think about the Reggio Emilia methods, thinking about uh, maybe a team of people to kind of solve that problem about how to how to not break the flow of activity over time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, you know, to Troy's point as well, I think the technology solutionism is something that we you know um, within this space oftentimes can get sucked into. And so I think it's it's really good to kind of talk about talk about lower level, like below the actual tools. What are what are the actual mindsets that enable this to happen? Um, and I think um, you know one of the things that that I've noticed in my own work is that um, there's often this this kind of tension between um, posting something to Instagram and posting something to Facebook. These are things that we see as happening organically, right? Like a lot of kids are already doing these. Um, even kids that probably shouldn't be doing those things are doing these. Um, and uh, 
And so one of the things that I'd like to kind of ask the group is, is like a lot of that is based on social motivators, right? Like there is, there, there's an actual external motivation and validation that comes from posting something to Instagram. It's essentially a behavioral motivation platform. So is Facebook. Think about the likes or the favorites. Um, and so in terms of, you know, taking a photo of something because you're within this mindset of, um, you know, within a critical mindset versus um, taking a photo of something and posting it to a social network while the actual artifact is, could be very, very similar, both our photos, both our videos, um, the intent behind those actions are wildly different. Um, and so I think that's one piece um, in terms of bringing that to a classroom, bringing that to student work, that I think that we need to be honest about in terms of the relationship between the technology that we're seeing used in classrooms and the intent that we're trying to drive. Great. Um, so uh, there was a really good there's a question that just came in on uh, the back channel that says, um, how do we, um, or do we need to, assess the differences between the work of the individual and the work of the collective as students collaborate in the classroom? And, and Tina and Troy, you both kind of touched on this. Um, uh, Tina, did you have any specific thoughts? Oh, it's such a great question. Um, and it is one that, that we spend a lot of time talking about both in the in the classes I teach and, and with the teacher groups that we work with. Um, I guess the first question that I ask is what's the point of the project or whatever it is that students are working on. So um, there are tasks, there's some writing about this in, in the literature, there are tasks that are group worthy and tasks that are not. And a lot of the time when I think we as teachers are really struggling to assess the group work, that the issue is less the work than the initial task that we set up for students. So it's a, it's a sort of task that students can easily divide into five parts and you do one part and you do the next thing and then it's done, right? Um, and that there can be uses for that, that kind of thing. I think I'm, this question is a, is a little more complicated with tasks that require true collaboration, which I think of as the the end result is nothing that any one of us could have predicted to start with and the end result is something that so represents the thinking of the group and the work of the group that we it would be very hard to tell who did what you know who owned which piece that just doesn't apply to the kind of thing that that you um, that you come out with so um, you know there may be times when it's perfectly appropriate to give a group task and assess students individually um, and also times when, when that assessment needs to happen as a group. I think that um, the degree to which the process is captured can be really helpful uh, in that, and that takes us right back to the question that we were talking about before, which is in the midst of a group, how do you document the process th that the group is going through? Not just for assessment purposes, but because usually when work is that complex, the group needs to be able to step back and reflect on uh, on, on what's going on. So those are just some things I think about when I'm trying to grapple with that question about whether or not it's important to go for the individual assessment versus the, the, uh, the group assessment. And I wonder if maybe Troy or Kylie, you all have thoughts about this as well. I, I do have a particular example I can offer, but Kylie, if you want to jump in first, go ahead. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Uh, so 
Ian's question, I think, is one that we've been asking for a long time, and Tina, my answer would echo yours. Um, and in terms of a specific example of this, uh, one teacher with whom I've worked quite a bit is Dawn Reed, uh, who's involved in the Red Cedar Writing Project in Michigan. I was in her classroom this spring, and we were working on a project where um, students, part of the project was that they were in literature circles. And the evaluation on the literature circle was partially about the way that the group presented their work, but it was also in part based on the um, dialectical journals that they were keeping. And then Dawn also made what I thought was a really smart move. She had them fill out a brief reflection. She actually used Google Forms, and they would give themselves kind of a self-evaluation uh, with some multiple choice, like levels, like on a Likert scale, actually, like how well do you think you've done this, this, and this, but then also had space for some response. And so they did earn a group and an individual grade. And I think that offering those types of opportunities is really interesting. I personally find it challenging when I try to have individual students in the group offer a grade to each other. It, it, that kind of gets a little too complicated for me, and then politics gets uh, messy, uh, sometimes depending on the group. But I think by having students accountable for a group project as well as documenting their own process of learning that you can get some really good results. That sort of comes to uh, some of the questions that we were talking about earlier of documentation as a form of reflection within itself versus uh, reflection sort of being a part of the process at the end um, of the cycle. Um, I'm, I'm really curious to see, um, to hear about examples of have folks tried both of these or combinations of them and sort of what, have, what has worked for you in terms of practice um, in, in both informal and formal learning spaces? Right, I think, you know, this, this uh, arcs back to um, Donna Schoen's work, and we think about reflection in action and reflection on action. And so the distinction being, you know, um, the kinds of decisions that we make fairly spontaneously as we're engaged in a design task um, are, are what we might call reflection in action. And so um, a lot of times these don't even have words to them, um, although these um, uh, kind of like... Uh, uh, you know, protocols where um, where you might, you know, do an action and then kind of report on what you did and do an action and report on what you did and keeping keeping these kinds of um, uh, design thinking journals and so forth that, that, that as a record of your thinking kind of help you to illuminate this, this reflection in action. Um, but as professionals, actually, we do a lot of reflection in action all the time is so that, that people actually can think with the materials. You know, as I look at, like, professional designers, they'll say, hold off. You know, don't talk to me right now. Give me the piece of paper. I need to fold it in particular ways. I need to solve the problem with materials itself, right? Um, and then this idea of reflection on action is to step away and you articulate the process. You bring words to it. You translate what you just did um, in, in a more metacognitive kind of way and reflect on it. I think both types of reflection are really critical, and we postulate that they're really critical to um, to learning. 
but I would say, I would argue that we actually don't know a lot about what conditions and how often to promote reflection in and on action. And so I think that there's, there's actually a lot of research that needs to be done in this area. Um, one of my uh, students is, is now kind of doing this kind of work for his dissertation work. And so uh, he's been, been finding that a lot of sophistication, but different kinds of things actually happen in the inaction and on action. Um, and so, so he's, he's looking at the kinds of learning games that actually come um, from each of those pieces. And so, um, you know, as we ties back to this notion before, as we talked about individuals versus group, um, we're finding the reflection in action is actually really great to have as a as a group reflection, especially with young children. Is that um, reflecting as a group on maybe a shared object that you're designing, a shared composition? A lot of times we think kids have to have the one to one. It's a it's a very cognitive idea that that. You know, everybody's got to produce something. But we're finding actually a lot of the learning benefits that allows you to draw out your intuitions and what you're coming to the table with is if you do this in a large group setting. Um, and then reflection on action, um, we're finding, is actually really great to do individually so you can tell your own story about what's emerging and what happened in that process and really highlight what that experience was for you. Those are just a couple things coming out of our research. No, that's great. Um, it's it's interesting how much of that I think connects to my work, not in education, but my work as a designer. Um, just in terms of professional practice, like I was I was giving a talk to a bunch of design students um, last week about critique and sort of like what good processes for critique are within professional practice, and I think like reflection in action is this idea of at, at least as it as it relates to design is that this idea that you should never be so far away from the problem that that you're. Um, that you're unable to, to, to step away from your work, that, that the reflection in action actually works as a way to remove yourself from the closeness of the piece to look at things more critically. Um, and doing that in a group um, is incredibly helpful as a way of, of sort of building a connection with your peers and then pulling back from the work, reflecting on it, and then going back in. Um, and, and you know, within the design world, we call this critique. Um, and, uh, and also within the art world. Um, and so kind of thinking about that in terms of how that translates to, um, to learning spaces like is, is incredibly interesting. Um, there's a, a, another really good question just came in from uh, Joe Dillon from the back channel, which is um, how much of a role does student self-assessment of their own digital work play in helping teachers step back during the evaluation process? Um, the timing of this question is amazing because we were just talking about stepping back from your own work, but thinking about it from, um, from the teacher's perspective is how does this idea of assessment allow us as educators to step back from the work as well? I can take a swing at that one first if you'd like and it actually connects to another question earlier from Gordon about like having students document their work. So one of the little side projects that I, I was working on this year was with my uh, sixth grade daughter's language arts teacher. Um, I, I don't know if it's just because I'm a wimp and I don't want to sell popcorn and have to do 50-50 raffles or if I choose to volunteer my time in different ways, but I decided, you know, a long time ago that I would uh, volunteer at the school by, you know, helping one, one teacher a year, you know, really do a project. That's how I spend my volunteer hours. At any rate, um, I was working with her and they were trying to have the students document um, what they learned through um, a sixth grade 
class called STARS, and I can't quite remember exactly what STARS stands for. It's about like strategic reading and academic planning and things like that. It's kind of a transition to middle school and um, content area literacy. And so at the end of the year, we, we were talking like what would, what would work well to have students really um, summarize. You know, we don't need another collage. We don't need another, um, you know, thing just to kind of, oh, every kid stands up and goes, oh, wow, this is what I read this year, and we have to st sit through 50 of them. So we had them design uh, digital portfolios, and in their portfolios they had to um, take some of the data that they had but then really reflect on it, and at the end of that process they also recorded a short screencast. So they had to give basically a virtual tour of their digital portfolio. And so I, I can share the link to my, my daughter's screencast here on Twitter in just a second. But, um, you know, some of the kids, eh, you know, not a big deal. Other kids really got into it, and there were some really amazing um, products that the kids put together thinking about ways to visually represent their, their reading over the course of the year. So I think it, it was very helpful for the teachers and for me as a parent to step back and see what the kids valued most. And... Me, personally, I'm not a huge fan of Lexile scores, but some kids were really proud of the fact that their Lexile score had gone up 100 or 150 points in the year, and that was a big deal, and they made their charts represent that, and they were really proud of it. So I think sometimes what we value as teachers is not always what kids value, and giving them the freedom and flexibility is really important. I'll, I'll grab the link and throw it in the Twitter feed. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Troy. I think it's really... It's a really compelling example, and the other, um, you know, the opportunity for for kids to reveal themselves, to actually share what's going on, uh, is I think is we just you know the curriculums these days are just so structured in so many places that it's really hard to find those moments, and I think inviting self-reflection is one of those ways that we can, in pretty short order, just get a peek at at. Uh, the kinds of thinking that we don't always have time to surface in the classroom if we're really if we're really feeling the pressure of, of that, you know, the curriculum and the test breathing down our necks. Yeah. One of the things that is challenging in that is again that helping students develop the vocabulary that they need in order to do that reflection well. Um, so I think there are a lot of of you know a lot of times when I'm first working with or even I was gonna say first working with a, a class of eighth graders at the beginning of the year, but and the same could also be true of the graduate students I teach, actually. The, those first reflections are often just reports on what I did. And, and so helping students move beyond just reporting what you've done to why did you do it that way, what decisions were involved, and what did you learn out of that process is, you know, that, that takes some energy. Um, so on the one hand, we can use self-assessment, I think, to get really um, a more nuanced picture of what's going on for students that's uh, it, been really important to me as a teacher at this, and that's um, kind of a quick and dirty way in the midst of a pretty um, structured day to, to be able to see something that's going on for students. At the same time, in order to get that picture um, as revealing as we'd like it to be, I think that requires some upfront work as, as teachers for us to um, help. One of the ways I do it, honestly, in my classroom is I get, when I collect reflections from students at the end of a class or the end of, I just grab a couple of ones that I think are particularly um, 
either insightful or have used some interesting tactics for reflecting and take the names off um, and then share them out with the class. And we, we talk about them in the next class session. Let's talk about these reflections. What was interesting? What's interesting about them to you? What ideas are you getting from them um, that can feed your own reflection strategies for it? So That's great. Kylie, did you have a question? Yeah, I just wanted to underscore this notion that, that Tina had put out about this, um, this uh, the why questions that we're asking, is mm -hmm. that, um, you know, a lot of the, the current research um, coming from one of my students again is, is, is showing that those why questions, the, the sort of the reasoning that becomes the comes behind them, really get the kids to articulate um, not just what they did, but but the kind of the, the building on their existing thinking and, and the elaboration that you really want to see as an educator. And so um, so of all the kinds of questions that you can ask, I, I would I would just I would encourage the the um, the questioning of the why, and it, it starts to unravel um, some interesting rationale and gives you sense of, of where they're coming from and their views um, that some of the other questions just just don't get at. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that Tina brings kind of together two pieces of this. One is, you know, the critical mindset component, but the, another one is that there's actually a tool set or a skill around um, self-assessment and self-reflection that, that, um, that needs to be done up front as a part of the work. Otherwise, you do oftentimes end up with, um, you know, you'll... It, you'll end up with like just a more shallow set of self-reflections that's more about talking about the what rather than the why, getting back to Kylie's point. And so there, there's, a, there's a language, there's a vernacular that's attached to that type of thinking and sort of uh, teaching that language can actually really help in terms of um, mindsets and enabling the kids to start to go down into the depths of, of what they're making. Yeah, if if I may, uh, Andrew, there's I'm, I'm thinking of another resource that has been really helpful to me in doing this, and it comes out of work done by one of my colleagues at Project Zero, Ron Richard, who does uh, work around developing cultures of thinking in classrooms, and has written a couple of books about this idea of thinking routines, which are just short little, they're like protocols, you know, just a short set of questions that can be used in multiple situations that just help students um, to uh, dig a little more deeply into their experiences. And those have been, I can also share a link to, to some of that work so that people can investigate it. It's been really helpful to me, both with middle school students and with graduate students. Wow, that would be wonderful. Uh, you're going to post that on Twitter? Yeah, I can okay. that up. Wonderful. Um, so we're starting to get closer to the end of our time here, but before we got too too much further, um, oh, there's actually another question that came in. So never mind. Um, so uh, Joe from again from I, it looks like Twitter. Um, if we were to revamp um, uh, teacher training to better prep them to look closely at student work, what should they be learning? And this is actually wonderful because this just ties into what you were talking about, Tina, and I think also um, Kylie's reference of uh, reflection in action versus reflection on action. Um, are there any other uh, resources that folks know um, that, that they would recommend um, to uh, fellow educators? Mm. I would just really encourage people to think about how tools like screen capture and screen casting, um, as well as other tools that allow for other audio commentary and reaction like VoiceThread, I think that those tools are used um, often for student projects, which is great, but I think that we can also invite 
students as well as pre-service teachers and in-service teachers to use those as reflective and analytical tools. Um, so, for instance, say your student creates a project in YouTube and then you're able to play the YouTube video while also recording the screencast, basically creating kind of a director's cut. And the student says, well, this is why I made this move, and this is why I made that move. And um, other students or you as a teacher could offer feedback. So that, that would be one thing. In terms of revamping teacher training and pre-service uh, education, I could go on for another whole webinar about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think what I would say is that as a teacher educator, one of the things that I need to be very conscious of, and I hope other teacher educators are too, is that we bring samples of student work into our classroom. I think it's very easy, um, even in a methods class where students are out there um, you know, in the field, to, they're watching, they're looking, they're learning, but they don't pause long enough. And if we don't provide those moments to pause in our methods courses, then we're just as much at fault. So um, that would be my polite reminder both to myself and other methods teachers that we, we do need to provide those moments for them to actually do the looking and structure them with protocols and so forth. Great. Um, thanks, Troy. Uh, Kylie, did you have any um, resources to add here? Yeah, I, well, I wanted to just generally say that we need to get pre-service teachers into doing the same kinds of things that we want our youth to do, and so that they're creating and then sharing these works in the class. And I think, I think you know, for process of critique, I would look at the arts education literature, all of the, the existing, you know, arts ed faculty that you might have in your pre-service teacher training programs and so forth, um, because it, it really is a grounding in the arts. You know, the arts get us to see things that we haven't, um, you know, we might not always recognize in the work at our first glance, right? And so it's a really a, a deep study of, of all of the different kinds of aesthetics there. Um, and so, so, you know, kind of putting the work up, taking a moment for that reflection, really modeling that, I think, in the classroom, I think is really important. One technique, I think, that, that um, you know, came uh, from the folks over at the National Writing Project was, was really thinking about hot, um, warm and cool feedback. And you could actually put, you know, red post-it notes or pink post-it notes and, and blue post-it notes and really getting the kids or the pre-service educators to articulate what it is that they like and what it is that they don't like and, and why that is in the work and maybe a, a suggestion for change. Um, I, I think that this is really important that we get this sort of balanced feedback. A lot of times, you know, trying to create create and recreate these hierarchies is that we try to tear down the work without trying to point to a potential solution or um, thinking about what's actually there to build on is that, um, you know, all of the work has potential. You know, people have created these things and, and through refining it, it can actually become a really excellent piece of work. Um, and similarly, um, you know, we can we can actually help to structure that over time. And so, so really kind of pushing the, the classroom discourse so that everybody's identifying the weaknesses and the strengths, even in the best work of the classes in a master work. And so how can we continue to evolve that over time? Yeah, I would I would certainly echo um, looking at arts education as a resource um, for a lot of these things. Um, I'm reminded of a there's a there's a book called Understanding Design by Keys Dorst um, that talks a lot about what design you know design is often described as a process, um, and as a part of that you know critical self reflection and also group reflection on work is is 
an integral part of creating a feedback loop as a part of that process to constantly refine and improve the quality of the output. And um, this is obviously like reflected within fine arts and just like the arts more broadly, whether that's writing or, um, or sculpting. And so I think there's actually a very good sort of corpus of content and, and literature and also even talks about um, what good critique practices look like um, within the arts. And I think that there, there are certainly some differences, but there's also a lot that can be brought back into uh, learning environments from some of those disciplines. Um, so uh, one thing that I wanted to talk about really quick is uh, Troy and um, uh, um, I know that there's a there's a process that you're working on um, for a book uh, for Teachers College Press. Um, could you kind of talk a little bit about what you're doing there? Yes. Yeah, so as I referenced at the top of the hour, I've been working for the last year or so with uh, seven other National Writing Project teachers, and my the gist of this conversation came out a long time ago while I was working on some of my first books, uh, Digital Writing Workshop and Because Digital Writing Matters, and this question of assessment was evident then as it is now. How do we actually do this and, and talk carefully about what kids are doing in that process of composing digital text? And I started speaking with an editor at Teachers College Press, and um, you know, publishing sometimes goes quickly, sometimes goes slowly, but it took a while. And um, I finally, last summer, took the leap and um, didn't quite have contract in hand, but knew, knew what I wanted to do. I'd been talking with the editor, contacted two elementary, uh, two middle school, one high school, and one freshman composition colleague, um, and said, let's meet once a week over the summer using Google Hangouts, and we're going to use um, the collaborative assessment protocol conference and also a, a descriptive review of student work protocol um, kind of blended the two of those together. And, and we did something uh, that we had done for a, a National Rain Project event a few years earlier where we took one piece of work and looked really closely at it. So we would meet on Sunday nights for about an hour to an hour and a half, usually. The presenting teacher would say, just a little bit of context, here's so-and-so's project, um, it's on YouTube, go. And we'd all watch it together. And then we went through this process saying, um, what did you notice? Um, what questions does the work raise for you? And uh, of course, the third one's off, slipping off the top of my mind right now. But the idea was we ended up having these very rich conversations. And I would capture the notes anywhere from two to 3,000 words a night worth of notes and um, we would then uh, uh, go back and reflect and pause and now we're in the process where they're refining their chapters and basically they're going to describe the context of the work, they're going to describe a little bit about the student in the assignment and then they're going to reflect on the process of going through that protocol and we're looking at implications for assessment and we're using that multimodal assessment project framework from the National Writing Project. Um, and someone just asked, I'm working with Gene Ward at Teachers College Press, uh, who's been very good uh, in helping me think about how to frame this book as an editor. So um, it's been a great project, and um, the teachers are, are kind of turning in their chapters and getting ready to do peer review this summer. And um, 
yeah, we hope to share some of the work on Digital Is and also hope to have a book out soon. Great. So, um, Troy, you mentioned uh, something that I, I, people may already be on to this resource, but in case they're not, the um, you described using a protocol that was drawn from a couple of different protocols, uh, one that was developed at, uh, by Pat Carini at the Prospect Center, uh, in Vermont and the other developed at Project Zero, the collaborative assessment. And if people are, when when we're using this term protocol, it just means a structured conversation in this. It's a pretty straightforward term. And if, um, if people are interested in that, um, if you go to the School Reform Initiative website, which is another one that I'll try to put up, there's a huge bank of protocols there to help guide conversation of all kinds. Sometimes it's conversation about a text, sometimes it's conversation about an important question, but a lot of those protocols have to do with the close examination of student work and choosing a tool to help that conversation happen. I have found to be pretty essential in, in getting that work going because the truth is a lot of people say our most important commodity is, um, is time. But I actually think our most important commodity is our attention. And what a, what a good protocol does is it helps us all keep our attention focused really closely on the student work. Not, our, uh, not, not the context, not, not our ideas about our ideas, about, but really what's going on for the students. So if you check out the School Reform Initiative website, there's a whole bunch of different protocols that you could experiment with there um, when there's student work on the table. Um, and the goal is to actually learn something about the students and about our teaching from the work. Yeah, I really appreciate the way that you just summarized that. I think that offering our students attention is what we do as teachers, right? It's how we build relationships, whether we're talking to them face-to-face -face or paying close attention to their work um, and, and having those types of conversations. That's great. So, yeah, I think um, understanding what the key barriers are to supporting learning um, in this work that we're doing right now is is like incredibly important. So, um, but we're almost out of time. So I wanted to just kind of get a final thought from everyone. Um, and it seems like key barriers is a great place to to sort of end off um, this conversation. And I also want to point people to there's a lot of resources that were that were sort of talked about within this call. So I think um, all of us will try to uh, post some of these things to our Twitter accounts um, just so that there's there's a little bit of a documentation so that people don't have to Google endless. Um, but Kylie, let's start with you. Final thoughts? Yeah, I, I think the biggest hurdle right now is just getting people started um, and getting going. You know, I think we've talked a lot about production, but we haven't talked about um, a lot of reticence to allowing time uh, for kids to actually make things in the classroom for whether that be digital or physical kinds of things. And so, um, so as we as we think about that, you know, just really allowing for more time, getting more people involved in it, and it really starts to transform the environment, transforms the learning experience. Tina? You know, I'm really, uh, boy, there's so many. How can I boil it down to just one last thought, Andrew? It's <laughs> an interesting and, and rich topic. I mean, just I think the idea that, um, that examining the student work is really where we as teachers become learners, right? We become, in a sense, students of our students, letting our students teach us about what's going on for them. Um, and the possibilities afforded um, 
uh, by uh, technology to do that in even, you know, I love what Troy was describing about being able to do this online for an hour at a time when we don't all have to be face-to-face -face at school because that, that time is so hard to come by. Um, I, those possibilities are really exciting to me and I look forward to continuing to explore them more uh, in the coming months and years. Troy? So one last piece that I will share, one of the colleagues that I've been working with, uh, Christina Puntel from the Philadelphia Writing Project, created a resource on the National Writing Project site, Digital Is. It's called Looking with the Heart, Celebrating the Human in the Digital. And she creates what she calls the remixable process for looking at digital work, multimodal compositions, and other student work with thanks to the Prospect Center's descriptive review of work. So that's, that's a very long title, but it <laughs> does capture the process that Christina and our other six colleagues we went through last summer, uh, kind of step by step, and it's very adaptable. So if you want to see uh, essentially the protocol that we used while we were looking at digital work, it's up there, and I just sent the link out on Twitter. That's great. I think from my perspective, one of the, the final thoughts that I have is I'd love to see more sharing of the practices that, that folks like ourselves are doing in the fields and some reflection on what we're doing, like how is this actually affecting outcomes. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, that I'm looking forward to trying to share more of over like the next few months. Um, and I know that um, some of the process that Kylie has been doing with the, um, with the Open Portfolios Project and others, um, being able to get a more rich discussion from all of us in this community um, around self-reflection and looking closer at, at, um, at student work would be a great asset to the entire community. So. I just want to thank everybody for such an amazing conversation. Um, uh, we'll have a full video recording of this webinar available on connectedlearning.tv with some other content on the way in the next couple of days that you can share. Um, so this wraps up our uh, second webinar of this month-long series, but that doesn't mean have, have to mean that our conversation just needs to pause here. Um, we encourage everyone to keep going by using the Twitter hashtag ConnectedLearning and by getting involved in the ongoing conversations with uh, the Connected Learning Google Plus community. Um, so to learn more about the Educator Innovator and the network of partners, please check out EducatorInnovator.org. And uh, mark your calendars for Tuesday, June 24th at 10 a.m. Pacific time um, for the final webinar in this month's series um, as we take a closer look at the why and the how behind the Maker Education Initiative's Open Portfolio Project. So you'll be seeing Kylie again soon. Um, so thank you, everyone, and have a great day. <laughs>